Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Di Wilkins. After an early career as a golf pro, Di joined the agency Critical Mass 21 years ago and never left, rising to the position of CEO and helping them win clients like Apple, BMW and City. Sporting one of the strongest drives in the industry and a slayer of industry jargon, Di is a special kind of leader. She has helped Critical Mass grow to nearly 1,000 people across 12 global offices whilst creating a genuinely special work culture that is best showcased by a vast swathe of industry accolades this year, including Best Agency to Work For and Employer of the Year. But it is her work to come that is arguably the most exciting as she is a champion for diversity and inclusion, genuine purpose and giving back. Dai says, a void in leadership is almost like a beacon screaming for me to boss people around to take charge. Welcome to the show, Dai. Thank you, Giles. Right, seven quickfire questions then. Mac or PC? Mac. Reading or writing? Reading. New York or Stockholm? New York. Michelle Wee or Tiger Woods? Michelle Wee. Nissan or BMW? Both. Justin Trudeau or Justin Bieber? Trudeau. Brand purpose or brand building? Purpose. Fantastic. So, Di, can you tell us, what was your first job and what was your first marketing job? How did that all start? Uh, yeah, so first job, I did a lot before I got anywhere near uh, near marketing and was one of those kids that somehow always had jobs. So my, my first job job was uh, working as a shop sort of sidewalk sale bodyguard at the age of 11 uh, just getting there <laughs> making sure people didn't swipe the sweaters uh, at this little real retail shop where I grew <laughs> up um, and then you know I just I had a whole bunch of of uh, kind of summer job and after school kind of jobs from you know being a um, an errand runner for my dad's uh, office to scooping ice cream, uh, working at the local ice cream shop to working in the hardware department at Canadian Tire to then I really got kind of caught up in the golf course and worked um, both in the in the pro shop uh, and or on the grounds crew, um, basically all the way through college, all my all my summers and and uh, even waitressed uh, for special events at the golf course in the winters when I was home from from college. So it, it by the time I was about I would say 16 other than the hardware thing during the school year um i was i was pretty much a golf course girl wow and, and so was golf a real passion from 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 that early age i bought a yeah my dad you know was was a big golf guy and uh, and very involved with the golf club and so i i remember you know hanging out there as a little kid my my brother and i would um you know wash 
wash the wall with toothbrushes that were out there for club cleaning and stuff and just hang around as like five and five and three year olds kind of thing. But it was when I was about 13 was when it really, really clicked uh, for me. And I decided, yeah, I played every sport. I think I uh, was quite a sporty kid and certified tomboy. Um, and, and then sort of fell for golf and, and gradually throughout uh, junior high and high school weaned myself off of most of the other sports and, and dedicated uh, myself to golf. Um, and yeah, it just, uh, that's all, that's all I wanted to do. That's all I wanted to talk about. That's, that was, I mean, I was, um, you know, still involved with certainly school and everything else, but, um, that, that was my sport. And I, I understand that you were, you were quite, and probably still are quite the the gifted golfer. Uh, you know, I was never gifted. Thank you for saying that. I wish I was gifted. I was the hardest working golfer that, uh, that I, that I, um, well, other than one exception that I that I grew up with, um, I didn't have a tremendous amount of natural ability, but I was extremely driven uh, to do it. And I don't play much. I played about one round a year for the last 25 years. Um, so after college, I ended up um, getting chronic tendonitis on both my wrists about halfway through college, um, where I was playing, you know, competitive amateur golf in the summers and NCAA golf in the in the school year. And it just got to where I, I couldn't. I was in agony all the time. I couldn't play enough uh, with my injuries to really be good. And real truth, truth be told, I was never good enough to make the tour. And I have never been able to putt, uh, which is pretty darn essential. So I, I, was, <laughs> I was never going to make it, but I, but I held out the pipe dream uh, as long as I could. And, and it was an amazing way to get an education and to build a, a, a set of friends that I'm still friends with to this day that were from all over the place um, was also probably the only feasible way for a, you know, a, a teenage girl from Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada to end up in Mobile, Alabama for college. Um, so mm. it was just, a, you know, it was a whole new world and a whole new set of people and, a, you know, a great sort of growing independence um lesson in life um to to go you know just that far away from home to a place i really didn't know with nobody i'd ever met before um and uh, and make a go of it so i i am very very grateful to golf um despite not playing it so well anymore and and was it hard to to let go of golf then um i think i'm i'm in in hindsight i'm glad i had the injuries because um it wasn't i it it hurt so much to play that it actually was not as hard to give up as if I had to face facts and admit that I wasn't good enough. Um, so I, <laughs> I kind of got a little bit of the, I got a little bit of help with my, uh, with my exit, which was going to be inevitable at some point anyway, but it was hard to face. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. And um, as a father of two daughters, I, I really want to ask how old were you when you first beat your dad in a round of golf? Oh, probably about 15 or 16. <laughs> and, and, uh, and have never lost since <laughs> it was a it was a one-way thing I, I you know he he beat me for for the first few years and I tried hard we're both quite competitive and uh and, and it became quite a quite a battle when I was around 15 or 16 and then I just blew by him and uh Amazing. never never kind of looked back although I don't know uh anybody that would be prouder of what I was able to you know, sort of do in, in golf and well, frankly, in life and stuff than my dad. So he, uh, yeah. he, well, well, the first time might've stung a little bit. I, he quickly went from greatest competitor to biggest fan. 
Oh, I, yeah, I don't doubt that one bit, one bit. And then so from, from that moment on then, so from releasing the golf clubs to, to where you are now, there must be you know, a, fair, a fairly sizable gap in terms of how you began to where you are now. So can you tell us a bit more about that story? Sure, yeah. It, it, um, you know, I ended up graduating from college and sort of wrapping up my dream of golf all at the same time. Um, and I had a, a degree in English literature and a minor in French and had no idea what I was going to do. Um, and cause I had been so focused on the golf thing. So I, uh, I ended up, you know, taking the GMAT and getting a, a scholarship offer, um, to do a master's in, uh, an MBA, um, where I, where I was already going to school and a fellowship with the head of the marketing department. So, and he liked the fact that I had an English degree and a writing background and that sort of thing. So, um, it was a great, it was a great opportunity. A lot of my, you know, friends and teammates and stuff were, were a year or two behind me anyway. So I just kind of thought, well, this is cool. I'll get a free master's and hang out for a couple of, a couple <laughs> more years with my buddies and, uh, and get published and that'll be that. And, uh, and I did. And then, um, somewhere just before I was set to graduate, I, you know, met a guy who is still my husband today. Um, and, uh, and <laughs> he was back home in medicine hat of all places after being that far away from home for, for six years. Um, and, uh, so we, you know, took some time, backpacked Europe, and then uh, and I ended up kind of hanging around in Alberta for a while, doing teaching um, kids that wanted to be golf pros and working, running a golf academy, and just kind of biding my time till he finished his master's degree, and then we were gonna uh, move to Europe and uh, you know move to Spain and teach English. He had a German passport, and I was gonna you know mooch around off him kind of thing for a little while. Uh, we were going to get get married and do that. And uh, and I got a call from a golf friend of mine uh, saying, actually, we uh, let's go for beers kind of thing over, over the Christmas holidays uh, in 1998. I guess it was like January of 1998. And, and my then boyfriend, husband, fiance, then we weren't married yet, but I think we were engaged anyway. And, and she and her husband went and had beer and wings watched the Olympics and ended up talking about his company. Um, and, uh, and uh, during that beer thing, she kind of turned to him and said, you know, if you win that Sweden thing, you should hire die. She's really organized. And, um, and that was, that was literally my intro to the company. I had no idea what he was talking about, uh, <laughs> website stuff. And I didn't know much about it. I was teaching college and running a golf Academy and, um, and then I got a call from her um, in about April of that that of 1998, saying, "Hey, uh, Ted's company they won that that Saab thing. Um, he wants you to go to Sweden." Um, and I'm like, "What?" what? And uh, and she's like, "Yeah, come go go see him next week, you know, and and talk it over." But uh, he he's decided you're going, which is very a very Ted like move um, without consulting. <laughs> uh, and so I did. Uh, we <laughs> shifted the date of our wedding to accommodate starting my job at Kirk Mass and went off to Stockholm and worked with this amazingly talented group of, there were about 12 Canadians that went over there in summer of 1998. And, uh, and that was kind of the beginning of that. It was, we, we were a, a subsidiary of, of Critical Mass, a joint venture between Critical Mass and Lowe, Lowe Brinforsch in Stockholm at the time. And, uh, and that, that was the beginning at a couple of years there and then back to Calgary for 15 years and I've been in New York for five now. Um, and that 
that that was I'm still in that same first job in in a lot of ways. That's amazing. So the the point you're probably aware why I like to ask this starter question simply because so many people. Um, uh, you know, young people specifically are understandably anxious how to go about things the right way. So the assumption that people step out of a shiny university or college straight into a shiny agency career for you, it was a golf via a detour of beers and wings and then <laughs> and then to Sweden, which is amazing. Not the most, uh, I guess, planned or direct route, certainly, but I, I really think, and, and we've been... Um, We've been leaning really, really hard on our organizational values, and they, you know, align very well with my personal and the rest of the leadership team's personal values too. Um, and I, I think, you know, in hindsight, and I, I, I d- didn't realize it was happening at the time, but I think if you can find a place where, where you are, um, you feel like it's more than just a job. For me, mm-hmm. critical mass has never just been a job. It is. And, and a tremendous circle of friends. It is a place of great sort of amazing people, great support, the ability to, to work across. I mean, one of my favorite things about agency life is I've over 21 and a half years or whatever, learned a lot about a lot of different industries, a lot of different companies, a lot of different technologies, you know, certainly creativity and everything. I'm surrounded by these uber talented multidisciplinary people that are expert in so many different things um and i get to wear jeans um and and it just uh, (laughs) every place in the in the industry kind of offers a lot of that stuff but if you can find the one that just just feels like more than what you got to do to get somewhere else like that you can take some time and and enjoy the the journey a little bit i sound like a really old person and i feel like a really old person in this industry sometimes but uh but I think it's just it's a it's a it's a magical thing when you find your new set of best friends and your your support network at work and after work um, and feel like you're doing a good thing and amazing work for great clients. That is more than a job. And that's that's what I've been really fortunate to find here and, and what we strive uh, to create for as many of our our staff as we can. Yeah, and um, no, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's a true reflection of, of our, our industry and, and um, your point about learning a lot about a lot of things. There's a great quote I, I often recite from Dave Trott, which is the best people know stuff about stuff. Exactly. And, and, and it's true, and it's true. It gives you that such broad access to so much. And, and, and equally, critical mass ticked that moving to Europe dream that you had too. So it's taking you, it's taking you places. Absolutely. And I I don't think I would have taken the job if I'd been offered a job in Calgary. I think, you know, at that particular point in in my husband and I's life, we wanted to travel. We wanted to see the world. We wanted to go to, it could have been maybe somewhere else. Certainly Sweden was never on our radar when we were heading to Spain, but but it was was about adventure. And, you know, while while we were young and and, uh, relatively untethered and that sort of thing, go have a Go, go see something new and try something new. And, uh, and I think uh, I got just exceedingly lucky that there was an opportunity like this at, you know, heading to Europe at exactly the right time for me. 
you sound like a much more intelligent version of me because I'm constantly telling people. I mean, I had I had a stint in Spain, but equally a longer stint in Indonesia, and it wasn't planned; it just happened. And I'm constantly telling people who are less tethered to just do stuff, to try stuff, to go places and see what happens. There's there's a fantastic quote of yours which I was originally going to use in my introduction, but I thought I'd save it back, and I'm pleased that I did. But I understand when discussing the industry in general, in terms of when you first started, you said you had the benefit of being absolutely clueless, which I think is a is is wonderful because it's that I suppose innocence, if that's innocence, if that's the right word, to then go in and start questioning things that people who are more seasoned or familiar with the industry have had, you know, not beaten out of them, but they're less inclined to interrogate things. I. Absolutely. Uh, yes, I definitely have said that and probably still do some days uh, about myself. But the the I, I firmly believe that. I mean, I was fortunate in 1998 when I started that nobody knew anything. I mean, everybody was clueless, so I didn't quite stick out as, as much. Um, <laughs> but I think that I think that coming at it with fresh eyes is critical. I mean, we we um, we actually invest a lot of time and a tremendous amount of energy and money every year in our intern program for the exact same reason. I mean, that that getting this, we love in the summer, this past summer, we had 59 interns across uh, five offices. Um, at And it, we call it intern season. It's a, it's a phenomenal paid internship kind of program. I think we had this year, I'm gonna get it wrong, it was either 6,000 or 8,000 applicants for 59 spots. Wow. Um, and it's wow. gotten quite, and a, it, we do a big uh, team competition, so they work in their discipline, but they also work as a as an intern team and compete. We had a panel of clients all fly up to Calgary, and the and the team presenters all fly to Calgary and have like a full day uh, sort of open competition kind of thing. It was it was phenomenal, um, and that intern season reminds all of us to be curious, to you know challenge assumptions, to not get sort of the that just when you when you look at something with fresh eyes, you tend to see it differently and to and to shake yourself out a little bit of, yeah, 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 same old, same old hmm. by by, you know, not knowing innocence is a great word. Naivete is what I would have called what I had uh, when I started, but I think innocence sounds much better. So yeah. I'll steal that. But uh, it, it does wonders for the organization. And we, we end up hiring about half the interns every year, I think 59 percent is our average over, over 15 years of the program. Um, so we, we, you know, and they quickly become part of the, part of the fabric of the agency kind of thing, but just that whole fresh perspective every summer, just and energy of the boundless enthusiasm and energy, uh, certainly perks every office up, um, every summer. We all love it. What was it like then being a digital company in 1998? I mean, you said yourself that everyone was kind of at a stage of working it out. So that must've been very exciting. It was, it was awesome. I mean, it was really, we worked nonstop. I mean, literally non 20 hours a day, seven days a week kind of thing, nonstop. Everything was being figured out for the first time. Like, you know, I think every, everything we did, we started with a blank piece of paper. Um, and, and the, you know, the, the, the pace was crazy, but the camaraderie was outstanding. At least, at least for me, the, the 10 or 15 of us that had kind of come over and, and stuck in Sweden for the, for the long haul, we're just, we're so close. We were so far from home and we were working so hard and obviously we're in a foreign land and all this other kind of stuff with, with, I mean, 
amazingly wonderful Swedes around that all spoke better English than we did. Um, but we, we just formed such a tight, tight group that it was, it was all we did and all we talked about. And even when we weren't at work, we were talking about work. Um, and it was, it felt, I mean, certainly on a very small, small scale, uh, it felt pioneering. Everything we did mm. was, had never been tried before. And that was, uh, you know, and now, now we work our butts off to try and find a thing that's never been tried before or something that is different or distinct or, you know, unprecedented, um, because the industry has, has evolved so much, but back then everything was, um, and it was, a it was a, it was a pretty intoxicating environment to be in. And how, how was that agency client dynamic then, given that the agencies and, and you yourself were, were learning new, new, how to use new tools at that time? Was there, there must have been a lot of trust between the two sides? There was, we had, uh, we had a very good, good relationship with, with Saab. And this is specifically in, in Sweden. We did have more clients, but Saab was always the biggest one while I was there. Um, we did have a good, we had a, we had a sort of a day-to-day client who was learning just as, just as much as we were. And we had crazy amounts of transparency. I mean, it was positive for us in a, in a way that we were in Stockholm and the client was in Gothenburg. Um, and which at least put an hour flight between us. Um, cause we were, we were, I, I was there three days a week and he was often in Stockholm and it just, we were figuring out together. And I think there was a lot of trust, um, within the organization. I think we delivered a lot and, and they had, um, you know, dabbled a little bit and we're making quite a big one time, you know, first time kind of investment in, in, uh, all things digital and web and, 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 um, you know, configurators and those kinds of things and on a global basis. Um, and it was a brand that was, you know, this, this was Saab. I mean, they were, they were past their sort of heyday and trying to, trying to make it go a bit and sort of stay alive or reinvent themselves. Um, so it was it was fascinating, and it, and because it was global, we worked with um, eighteen different countries, and and um, in that, and I've been in it many many times over over my career since then. But trying to find the balance between working for the global client, let's try and do to do you know a, a cost effective version of the same thing everywhere, and working with the large markets that drove a lot of the the sales, Sweden and and the UK and the US in in Saab's case, was a really interesting tug of war that, that, you know, we see with every global organization we work with. Um, so it was a, a very fast induction into, uh, into what, what companies were going to wrestle with for the next 20 and 30 years as we do digital work that is part, part marketing, part advertising, part customer experience and part sort of platform and CapEx kind of, uh, expense. Um, so, mm. Uh, yeah, I don't, it was just, everyone was trying to figure it out and we had realized we had to figure it out with our client and not for our client, I think was, uh, was the big insight. And did you collectively then make, make mistakes? I mean, here, um, over in our little independent agency, we, we like to encourage people to make mistakes simply so that they learn. I mean, I'm not talking about drastic mistakes here or intentional mistakes, but without that, without trying and failing, it's difficult to learn. So presumably in the early days, when you're adopting such a powerful new set of tools, there must've been downs as well as ups. Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, tremendous, <laughs> tremendous, tremendous mistakes. I mean, to, to me, the most 
glaringly obvious one was that um, so we had a very quirky design for for Sob.com, and we were doing it for 18 countries, 21 language variants, and Sob was quite, they're very embracing their design heritage and their, you know, sort of design quirkiness and thus the very quirky site. We had not, and none of the team from Critical Mass that I went to Sweden with had ever done anything other than a single US version. So we, we had no experience with the global kind of platform idea. Um, mm-hmm. And co- sort of collectively, uh, we ended up having Saab sort of insist that every piece of text was in their corporate font, which was not mm-hmm. a web-friendly font. So every mm-hmm. piece of text on 21 different versions of the site was a uh, JPEG. Okay. So yeah. we had to literally export and we had it all broken into little tiny chunks with this funky design. So we literally spent hours and hours and hours of exporting little tiny paragraphs from Quark uh, into, into an image and then with a like ferociously complicated naming convention to run 28 different, 21 different variables um, and then having all, all content, all words on the site as images, which you can imagine what that did for search. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you couldn't have done a stupider approach. There is no sillier way to do it. And, and that's, that's what we did. And we maintained that for like three years. Got wow. very efficient at maintaining it, but it was still um, it was still kind of crazy, and uh, and we just didn't know yeah. the implications of the decisions we were making until we tried to live with them later, and uh, and we didn't mm. know they didn't know, um, so it was uh, that was that was the most glaringly goofy thing that we did, but there were a million, uh, and and really did you know. Sort of <laughs> trying trying new tech and writing brand new code that nobody had ever written before and i think you know our tech lead would say i think it'll take a day and it would take you know a month and a half and other things that we thought were going to take a month would take three days and and so we were it was very much learn and adapt as you go and as i said the only way to succeed with that is is trust and transparency between us and the client just let them let them know everything we're dealing with all day long that's reassuring to hear but even even that text um example that's only foolish in hindsight really i suppose plus i doubt very much you've ever made that mistake again so there's value there <laughs> oh absolutely I, I i became this uh this giant sort of militant proponent for you know um doing doing everything in modules and translatability and and variations and all this kind of stuff so anything that critical mass did for the next I don't know, 10 years that had multiple variants and stuff, it'd be like, well, we need die on this one. Cause I, and then I would, just, you know, I don't actually have any skills myself. So I would just advocate for not doing things the way, uh, the way we learned those, those tough lessons uh, on, on our very first global project. Well, they did need you, didn't they? And, and, and increasingly so, um, otherwise you wouldn't be where you are today, die. So, so let's, so let's fast forward then to the present day presumably digital is still very much at your core. So everything we've discussed really has shaped not only who you are and how you approach work to the whole culture that you've, you've created at critical mass as you, you, you describe yourselves as a, a digital experience design agency. So how does that differ from other agencies? Um, 
you know, I think I think we uh, there. You know, there have been a number of really big shakeouts in the you know insert air quotes here kind of digital space over the the twenty years or so that that uh, critical mass has been around and that I've been doing this. And um, it, I think I, we're not the only company that does what we do by any means, but I think we've stayed very true to true to what we're best at, which really is sort of customer experience and experience design, or we call it experience design with a relentless focus on the customer. Um, it, we didn't know that's what it was at the time. Um, you know, we, we, it wasn't called UX even it, it was, it was digital or it was web or it was, then it became mobile and social and all these other kinds of things. Um, but that, that's very much our, our DNA is to come at it from that mix of strategy and creativity and technology and data, um, which are, you know, some of our key that, that with, you know, the people that, that help get it done and, and run the client relationships and stuff is really sort of what, what we still do in terms of the multidisciplinary, um, approach. And so it, it's sort of figuring out how we can embrace all the new technologies and opportunities that come our way when that skill set is sort of the, the fundamental basis of any solution. So we we have obviously done done mobile, done social, are done VR, done AR, uh, you know some little AI things thus far, and, and lots more in the works. Um, so what whatever the the new the new trend, the new tech is, um, you know we we sort of look at approaching it from that first of all customer centric point of view, and then figuring out how do we how do we engage, how do we embed, how do we learn and experiment, um, and sort of continue to evolve for for customers and what 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 they're trying to achieve and in doing that delivering uh, for our clients and our clients business results yeah and i think that customer centric seeing things through the eyes of your customer is certainly in my experience what i see where a lot of businesses and agencies get things wrong where they're very quick to adopt new technologies and new tools for the sake of adopting the new rather than thinking about the customer which we all are uh, should be doing every day every time we approach a new project to think how can this new tool add value to that customer and to this process i i totally agree um and we're you know we've never ever been sort of a hot shop uh that that you know does the super flashy hit hit or a couple of hits or whatever and then and then isn't really around we're, we're a little bit of the uh a little bit more pragmatic um, and certainly long, long, deep relationships with clients, which certainly helps with longevity. Um, but the, yeah, I think the the it, customer customer centricity or or thinking like the customer, or chief customer officer, all that kind of stuff is pretty vogue right now and has been for the last few years. I think we uh, we were the opposite uh, on the opposite foot where we've been doing it all along. We just weren't calling it the right thing. Yeah. Um, and, and others maybe were talking about it, but weren't necessarily or still aren't in our, in our estimation doing it right. And I, I think um, we we're at a bit of an interesting crossroads in that we, uh, we, we really like to know individual customers. I mean, really try to get into the minds and, and from, from testing and uh, observing and real time feedback from real customers to trying to get at what's really driving them, um, that that research component and ethnography. And we were in, I think it was 2000, 2001, 
following grocery shoppers around an Albertson store in Boise, Idaho, not even knowing that was called ethnography, but we were building the, you know, e-commerce grocery experience and we're trying to emulate the way consumers shopped and the way they considered this product versus that product and the way merchandising played a role in store and how would we, how would we um, bring that to life in a digital form? So that I think we, we kind of always that intuitively we were building this for them, believing that our, our, our clients would succeed and their businesses would thrive if their customers were able to accomplish what they needed to in these platforms that we were building. Um, so very, very UXy. I mean, we do a fair bit of campaign work and, uh, you know, some, some sort of stunts and physical digital and some of these other kind of extensions for sure. But the core always kind of was this customer experience stuff. Um, and, and I do think that's a little bit unique and that there, there were a bunch of agencies that started that way, but a lot of them didn't make it through 2002. Um, and, and another wave didn't make it through 2007, 2008. Um, so I, I think we kind of got a little bit of a, there, there are only a handful or so of us that are, that are sort of at the global scale able to draw their roots all the way back there. Uh, but the interesting phenomenon to me now is, is, is data certainly, and, and we've heard that word enough in the last five years, but how, how do you take an abstraction of the customer, which is their data and use it in a similar way, um, to sort of a, a real true conversation with a customer in other words you know how do you how do you get to the the empathy that you require to truly design an experience for these people from the data and uh, mm-hmm. and i think that's uh that that is a, a big quest in the the future of sort of digital advertising and and something we're working really closely with um for at&t for example with hearts and science and bbdo and critical mass have come together and are really trying to use the the uh, data savvy of the organizations with the brand and creativity, um, a, as well as this inherent sort of customer centricity, saying don't just don't don't just give me data. Let's understand these people and and try and put the two together. Um, and it's uh, it's an interesting question. And when we're doing some amazing work for for AT and T uh, that we could never do if it wasn't all three parties coming together in a in a really tight way. Yeah, I think what you've just said is really important. I find it very encouraging also that you said you were doing customer centricity without necessarily realizing that's what people were calling it. Because in truth, I've never really uttered those words before this podcast interview. I would just understand it as research and understanding the market and the customer. So in my MBA, we would we would just largely say it's 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 about adopting that state of market orientation and accepting that you know you're not the market, so your opinion is not only invalid but sometimes dangerous. Right. And then filling that with with research, and that research could be any number of flavors. So I love the fact you talked about ethnography in a previous podcast. Trisha Wang will be doing cartwheels when she hopefully listens to this episode. But filling that with data and any other intel that you can get is so vital for for pretty much any agency of any discipline i would suggest so that was that was really really great to hear die oh great well yeah I, I think we've been we've been espousing that type of line of thinking for for quite some time but we we really are only the last couple of years sort of having the the, the industry kind of come up with the language that we were uh we were lacking <laughs> almost uh for for 20 years yeah 
Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, clearly you have been doing that since you began and that's what's so wonderful. But I, I, I wonder then if I can ask you, do you think this is perhaps something that more agencies or most agencies don't perhaps adopt and are perhaps too quick to rush to whatever tactical execution they might think is appropriate without understanding the customer and having and seeing it through the customer's eyes as you said i think um i think i think most agencies certainly most of the agencies that that we are are um you know working with or or seeing in action or pitching against that sort of thing i think everybody is certainly striving towards a more of an understanding of customer i think Mm. Um, I've, I've heard interesting arguments, um, for not, not letting the customer dictate too much. Um, and that, that, potentially, okay. you know, being, being too well-versed in the customer or too focused on giving the customer exactly what they want, um, can strip away creativity. Um, I don't necessarily believe that, but I understand the, uh, the, the need to be careful that it doesn't, I, I don't, I don't think you can ever know too much about your customer. Um, but I, but I do think that just you know, sort of meeting an expectation might not be not might not be enough uh, when you could actually exceed it. Yeah, um, that makes sense. But yeah, I think I think uh, I think everybody's kind of aiming for that. I think customers kind of the new black in in terms of what people are talking about. And I feel quite fortunate that we have you know so many years of history to sort of lean on uh, that it's it's built into the fabric of how we approach work. Um, and I think we see yes. mixed results when agencies that don't have that as their core fabric try to do it. Um, and and hey, wait, there's a million things that aren't in our fabric that we don't do so well when we try to do it too. But I, I think uh, I, I definitely think there is much more of a demand and requirement from clients to 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 bring that customer centricity to bear. And and if and if it's not sort of how you how you've approached things before it there's there's quite a steep learning curve and a lot of a lot of mistakes to be made i think by uh, by some of some of our competitors that that don't really come at it that way historically mm. i think that comment that you referenced there people saying um you shouldn't let the customers necessarily dictate i think i i understand perhaps what the intention of that statement was or I'm just maybe I'm being sympathetic to the to anyone who says it because I know Henry Ford uh, famously said if I asked people what they wanted they'd have asked for a faster horse so I think it can maybe block innovation if you just deliver what the customer expects but that's maybe you know if we're talking a literal product or service literally rather than a what they're hoping to achieve because of course a car works for the the latter but not the former totally agree and i think that it we're not we're not necessarily um i wouldn't i don't think we're trying to ask customers to tell us the answer i think we're trying to understand customers as well as we can so that we can can use that empathy to come up with something that they don't even expect that meets their needs even better than what they they um, articulate. We're we're not we're not saying hey how should this buy flow work. We're saying when you look to, when you when you go to buy your iPhone, you know what what uh, what are you considering or you know yeah. those kinds of things. So we're 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 certainly learning from the customers at a at a at a more abstracted layer so that we're our experts our our multidisciplinary experts are coming together to come up with a solution and then we're testing it. I mean, we test with the, yeah. I would say bring a, a little bit um, less of an ego, a creative ego or a professional ego 
to our work when we're going to open it up to real-time user feedback optimization. Um, we'll we'll do uh, you know really sort of hands-on bring live customers into a room and have our design and UX and technology leads present work and hear whether users customers like it, don't like it, get confused by it, abandon here, those kinds of things. So it's um it's uh, it's obviously one kind of the work we do that is that is very much like that. The rest often does a lot of sort of live testing and and alternate alternates and optimization in real time live. Um, but uh, but we're trying as much as we can to welcome welcome more feedback earlier in the process so that we aren't losing sight of you know who we're who we're designing this to serve. Yeah, I, I can't fault that at all, Di. That's fantastic. Um, can I just touch on leadership now? So in the run-up to recording this episode, myself and my colleagues here who help uh, behind the scenes of Call to Action have had the pleasure of talking to a couple of people who work very closely with you. And um, we weren't uh, at all digging for, <laughs> for any dirt at all, but all of the feedback we had was just so glowing in terms of you as a leader and I know that that's something that is echoed uh, throughout your team. So I want to ask, how do you lead and, and, and how does anybody lead successfully? Oh, boy. Um, well, hopefully they told you how great I am at taking a compliment. Um, the, uh, <laughs> it's not very. Um, I... Uh, I, well, I mean, I think the, the I can take the second one first. How how should people lead, or how do people lead? I I, I don't know that there's a singular formula. I think um, I uh, have seen very effective leaders with a you know up close and and far away um, with radically different styles and beliefs and approaches. Um, I and I so I don't I don't really think there's a single right answer to to that sort of second half of the question. Um, you know, per personally, um, I, I, I have the, the awesome people around me, so it's, it's just kind of easy. I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I think empathy is certainly a big part of it. I think, um, values are pivotal. I, people talk about values all the time. I, I do too, but I also try to live them every day. I try to use them for, for, uh, decision-making and, our entire organization really does too. Um, so I think that it's, it's just, there's a, there's a groundedness and a transparency and a commonality around this set of values that we have literally on our wall and in our hearts um, that, that sort of unites the people at, at critical mass and, and helps breed this amazing culture that, you know, makes everyone love each other more um, and say nice things to you. Uh, even, even about me um, that I think is, yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't even take credit for, it. I mean, there was a group of us that, that work on this and that put the values in place in the first floor, first, um, first place, uh, 2015 year, 15, I guess, years ago. Um, and, and so it, it kind of, I almost think of it as a room rep, you know, when you, you're in, uh, you're in grade school or something and you, you, the class elects one person to go speak on behalf of the the team. I mean, most most of the uh, opportunities I have to talk about critical mass, I'm trying to do my best to represent what a thousand people here 
think, want, believe, do every day. Um, and I, and I consider that my responsibility to, to them and to our clients in that same sort of regard. So I'm not really answering this very well. Cause I don't really, I'm struggling to accept the premise. I, I, I think there, there are, uh, there are a lot of great leaders at critical mass that I get to work with and, and so I just kind of get to represent them. And they, and they come in all shapes and sizes. So as, as you said, there's no necessarily right way or right answer. I absolutely, absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, I've been, I've been the, the sort of maybe the right place at the right time, right person at the right time for, for critical mass. And, and over the last, what are 14 years or so, um, as, as CEO with the same guys, literally a couple of, you know, Chris and John and Lee in particular, that are uh, president and CFO and COO. The four of us have been doing this together for, for almost 15 years. Um, and, mm. and so it, it really has always felt like I'm part of a team, not necessarily, um, you know, leading the team all the time. Everyone leads in their own way kind of thing. And I think being open to that yeah. really works here and it might not work in another agency or another type of business but we found it mm. very effective here at critical mass. Well, I think that's, I think that is the right answer then. I mean, you're saying there's no right answer. I would suggest maybe that is the right answer because, you know, as with most important things in life, that, that it's, there's so many false binaries and there's so many questions that can't possibly be answered because the answer is always grayscale. It's never black and white. And I think that's perhaps one of them. I, I I definitely agree with that, and I think I gave you a really rotten answer to that question. But I uh... no, I don't. Yeah, I don't, well, I disagree with you there and then die because not, not, I think the way you answered suggests many things about the qualities people have referenced when we've spoken to them, um, and being a people person, and and perhaps it's just being yourself. There there was funny enough there was a an IPA course um, run a couple of years ago in London uh, of how to be a better leader. And the I'm, I'm, I'm doing it a disservice here by trying to, to summarize it and conclude with it so bluntly. But one of the things that stayed with me was it's just a case of being you, but maybe an exaggerated form of you because there's no right answer. It's just bringing the qualities that you have, but maybe amplifying them a bit um, is all you can truly hope for. And sometimes hearing that is sufficient for someone to then have the confidence to try and lead rather than trying to adopt a, you know, personality traits that don't come naturally to them. I, I love that. I actually had an experience. Um, oh, when was that? Probably two. I was. I think I was a 2002, 2003, and and that was the the. I was working on this really big pitch at, um, here at Critical Mass with a bunch of other people, and the CEO and and the woman who were running BizDev at the time, um, were we rehearsed and we rehearsed, and they gave me all kinds of feedback and fully intended it for it to be constructive feedback and. And, um, and I had been working quite, quite a lot more on, on my own kind of thing without that feedback and, and, uh, at leading in Sweden where, you know, I was kind of in charge. And so all of a sudden I'm in this different context and it's a very big deal, very big pitch for the agency. And I was critiqued to the point where uh, my actual presentation in the pitch was, I, I want to say awful, um, maybe a bit shy of awful. And I, I was so uncomfortable and so thinking about don't say so, so often, or don't, you know, like all the little tips and tweaks and make sure you don't look over to that side of the room as much as you do or whatever it was. And, and I was so in my head about presentation style and 
the way I was saying things that I completely sort of was uncomfortable and, and botched it. Um, and, and I came out of that and actually I had, we did this big event the next night and I got called up to present, didn't even know I was going to present, talk for 20 minutes. And the same CEO who was at both my boss, who was at both those, uh, both those scenarios, two days apart, came up to me after and said, how come you were so great tonight and so terrible yesterday in a nicer way than that? And, and <laughs> I said, cause tonight I wasn't prepared and I was just me and I spoke from the heart and I knew what I wanted to say. And I was far less concerned about, you know, whether I, how many, how many, you know, six syllable words I get in there and, and far more concerned about getting the right point across. And that's just how, how I work best. And I didn't realize yeah. it myself until we had that conversation. And since then, I've just uh, openly abhorred fakery and never been much for it myself and certainly not successful being it myself and have really leaned into that. Um, you know, if, 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 if somebody doesn't like or appreciate or want to work with me and my style, then maybe it's not a fit. It's not something I should change my style for. Um, not, not that I don't want to listen and learn and, and empathize, but I'm, I'm, I'm not the most polished person in the room. I never will be, um, but I'm probably going to end up being your friend for 20 years. So I hope that you know, <laughs> makes up for my lack of smooth. Yeah, well, th well, there you go. I think, uh, yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, you can metaphorically polish many things, so I don't think polish is, is always what people are after. I agree. And I think there, I think we have plenty of people in this business that sound good and don't have the heart to back it up. And, and I think that oh, yeah. the, the industry has been trying to change for, for quite some time. And, and I don't mind uh, being called refreshing, which I, which is the nicest way people can say you're kind of, kind of clunky uh, in, in how you express yourself. Yeah. Refreshing is nice. We're always told we're very different um, which I think I can, if I, I, if I think about it too long, I can take as a negative, but actually if we're not the same as everyone, then I think there's a, there's definitely a positive there. I think so too. Yeah. So then let's talk about industry change. So uh, accepting, and, and you've referenced your, the team that you have around you, um, very proudly and, and, um, very fondly. And I accept that it's, it's almost ironic and sad that this even has to be a question or a topic in itself, but with our culture and diversity, specifically gender lens, if we look at your senior leadership team and your employees and your creative department, statistically, you have a much more palatable split of women and men in your organisation. And I believe it's over 40% of your senior leadership team, uh, close to 50% split of your employees and 43% of your creative department globally are women in the industry now those stats are almost you know unheard of has that is that something that's consciously happened or is that's just that's just how the company has evolved it um it started out it was just how the company evolved um and, and uh you know i i credit it back to sort of our canadian roots and back to um i would say naivete but you've taught me to say innocence um in, in <laughs> realizing it was kind of, we were kind of walking right into kind of the old boys club um yeah. and, and and it just kind of happened i open heart open mind kind of thing it was very much our just our style and uh but that said in the last couple of years um about a year and a half ago we launched our first ever formal diversity inclusion board our EVP of talent runs that I sort of sponsor it myself. 
Um, and it's, it's truly designed what we're, we're quite good on, on gender split and, and really kind of always have been, um, and we have pockets We, you know, a, a single location in a single discipline might be not as, not as balanced, um, either way, actually, we've had offices that are just totally led by women, whereas other ones that seem like they're too heavily dominated to, to men. So globally, we, we come out really fairly even, um, but we have pockets that we're still working on, but uh, diversity and inclusion doesn't stop at gender, I think for, no, for yeah, us. And, and so we're trying to add that deliberate and conscious um, layer effort to, to sort of go hand in hand with open heart, open mind, and just be as inclusive as we can. And it's, it's garnered a lot of, a, a lot of positive feedback from the organization. I think, you know, the changes we've made are, are slight. They're tweaking. We are, we are finding that generally speaking, we're, we're in, in pretty good place on all of those fronts, but we can be better. Um, what from, from, you know, our, our kind of a, a, a wide gamut of things and, and we've got this volunteer group that became the board that literally the first thing they did was was read, review, and edit every one of our policies and procedures in every country we operate in to make sure that it was as, as inclusive as it could be. And that's not a fun job. I mean, this is this is people with real passion for for making us as good as we can be. And we're we're really fortunate to have that much enthusiasm to be to be a part of that group. I'm um, I'm wary that I've I've hardly made a dent in our agenda, and we're we're coming up to an hour already, Di. So I um, uh, forgive me for taking up so much of your time. Forgive me for my long answers. Wonderful. In which case, I would love to put some listener questions to you, if I may. Sure. So, asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. So. We've selected two as ever, Di, and the first question is from Donna. And Donna asks, how do you keep such a great fresh culture in an agency as it grows to a size of nearly 1,000 people across 12 global offices? So I, I suppose in many ways you've answered that indirectly with the leadership question, but is there anything else that we can we can tell Donna? Um, yeah, I think on values is at the core of all of it and, and instilling that values you know, pervade every office and every outreach outpost of the company. Um, but on top of that, I would say two things that we've done that have been quite um, helpful in, in keeping both some consistency in our culture and vibrancy in our culture. One is giving people in the organization an opportunity to move to the new place and plant those seeds of, of kind of the critical mass way, the critical mass brand, the critical mass culture. So literally mm. individuals having that opportunity to go open new offices and go overseas and, and get a great personal experience, but bring a little bit of, of, of uh, tried and true CM with them. Um, and the other thing that we've done that, that really works well for us is in every location, we, um, we have social clubs, critical mass social clubs, CM social club, and that is made up of volunteers in each place that are passionate about throwing the parties, bringing in the lunch and learns, finding the local speakers, figuring out where, which charities we're going to give back to in town and which events we're going to take part of and which parks we're going to clean and, and, um, letting cool, hip, young, local, you know, passionate people come together and guide those rather than have, you know, the, the 
sort of top-down approach to the social part of the organization has really kind of um, allowed allowed for for different different flavors of a of a wonderful critical mass culture to evolve around the world despite kind of getting to the point where we're so big not so big but big enough that it's hard to hard to act as one yeah that sounds fantastic especially the social clubs it's and it's a lot of fun and people rotate in and out of them and you know as they're going through different things in their life and whatever they they might get too busy and then new people come on but it's a it's a great way to keep um keep fresh and we just they got a budget and go do it and there's a couple of events we do globally that we want everybody to do and and have some consistency in and everything else is just we'll facilitate it but you 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 run with it team x or team y or social club z yeah amazing so question two is from tom and tom says i read about your liquid talent initiative if employees work off-site completely, how do you ensure they will be productive and basically do what they are supposed to do? Or does it just rely on trust? Absolutely relies on trust. So I, I would say the productivity question isn't something we worry about at all with our liquid talent. Um, we we have high standards for, for you know productivity and performance and everything for everybody, regardless of where they happen to sit while they're working. Um, our biggest, our biggest push with liquid talent is how do we make them feel like they're a part of this vibrant culture when they might be, you know, working from home in their jammies most days. Um, so it, it's, uh, you know, it's it's how do we it's how do we make liquid talent part of us, a, a little more of a liquid culture, which I, that, I shouldn't say it that way because we do have propensity to have pretty good parties um, with a different kind of liquid <laughs> culture. Um, but the, uh, the but just having that connectivity, and we do bring we have a um, our own internal award show, we call it the CMEs. We really like naming everything around here. Um, where we bring in all our liquid talent comes to sort of their quote unquote home office um, for our CMEs week. And we have a whole bunch of, from account reviews to the programming, to the award show itself, to the party afterwards, that sort of thing. So it's the one time a year we know absolutely everybody will be in one of the big offices. Um, and the rest of the time it's, knowing when to strategically bring people in to work with their team, knowing when to, um, you know, use, use video versus whatever. And then with uh, liquid talent too, the other thing we're starting to look at is when we have um, a number of remote employees in any given physical location, like city where we don't have an office, what's that next step. And this is right where we are right now is do we start, you know, renting a space where they can come together and work together on Fridays and just have, even if they might be working with totally different teams in different offices on different accounts and different disciplines, can we mm. form a, a little, a little bit of a social environment for them with other CMers in their local area. And that's, that's sort of what we're toying with um, and, and are likely to experiment with in, in 2020. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. There's there's an initiative here that um, there's a guy I know who is running in Bournemouth, and it's uh, it's not company or agency specific, but it's just he's starting to try and encourage people who are either freelancers or work from home to spend time together as a collective, simply because of you know the isolation of being at home all day working, exactly. which whilst has its there are pros to that clearly, but from a you know maybe from a mental health perspective, it does you can get you down. I've been there myself. Right, absolutely. Uh, so the final part of the interview then are our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Die. Sure. 
And they are, number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? Never compromise your values. Nice. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Um, sexism and racism. Sorry, that's two, but the isms, because they're terrible. The isms. Yeah, the isms are going right in. Yeah. Are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? Sure. I'm a, I'm a very passionate reader. I set out a quest a few years ago to try and read 200 books a year. I've never hit it, but I, but I read over 100 as a result and don't know quite as much about what's on TV. Um, wow. So a couple, let me think, a couple of picks from recent for me. Fiction I loved, although it was hard to read, The Great Alone by Kristen Hanna. Um, yeah. maybe one of my favorite nonfiction books of the last year, um, is one called the three year swim club by a woman named Julie Checkaway. Um, fascinating book about, well, I won't even tell you what it's about. It's cool. Um, and, uh, and then I guess for the, for the mob mob lovers out there, I hear you paint houses uh, by Charles Brandt about Jimmy Hoffa and stuff was amazing. Yeah, well, I, I actually, I actually read that you you don't tend to read business books or, or you know sh- uh, books related to shop. It's mostly fiction. Is that is that right? Fiction. I, I mo- uh, I'm I'm getting close to fifty fifty fiction nonfiction, but almost never about our industry. I figure I, I I I spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about critical mass and critical mass's clients and people and our industry and books are the way to to broaden my horizons. Yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with that. So number four, Di, is we we always like to dedicate every episode to somebody and we bestow that honour to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you you kindly dedicate this episode? Sure. I would would love to dedicate this episode to a woman named Isabella Rodriguez, who is a young rock star here at Critical Mass who is currently off fighting breast cancer. Um, And I would... Just love her to know that the thousands of past and present critical massers are sending her their uh, their strength and their love. Amazing. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Isabella Rodriguez. Thank you. If you head over to the listing of this episode, we've shared links to everything that we've discussed in the last hour, from links to critical mass to Di's book recommendations. Um, how else can people get more Di Wilkins? Uh, follow critical mass. I, I, uh, you know, we, we don't have sort of a single spokesperson at, at CM. So I think, you know, we're follow critical mass on, on social. And, um, if I do something that they think is cool, my, (laughs) my team will put it out there, but you'll also get the best of, um, all kinds of amazing people that, uh, that work here. Fantastic. Well, we'll add we'll add all of the social links that we can find to this listing also. So thank you so much, Di, for joining us. It, it's genuinely been a massive pleasure and a, and a huge privilege to talk. Uh, thank you, Giles. It's been it's been my pleasure. And finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please, please feel free to share it and, and, and add a review. We're very appreciative of all the support that we receive. To get in touch with us, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. to action I can't get no
call to action But I try, and I try, and I try, and I try